Ezra was an Old Testament writer. He was a scribe, meaning he was a writer and he was a priest. And he wrote these two books that were kind of combining together, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, over the next six months. And really what we're doing is we're, we're looking at a time in Israel's history when they came out of what's called Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And God brought them back to Jerusalem, back to the towns that he had originally set up for them and moved them into and promised them. That's where we get the promised land. And he had them reestablish themselves and rebuild the temple. And so for the next five, six months, we're going to be really just unpacking what the process of that looked like for the nation of Israel. And then just see how it applies to us as the church, as in our own strange way, our own peculiar, particular way, we're coming out a little bit of, uh, out of a, a little bit of an exile and we're seeing how God is looking to rebuild and restore and renew us as his, has his church. So we're picking up in uh, Ezra 3 and we're, we're going to answer some questions. We're going to ask and answer some questions. Uh, a couple of them are this, what happens when we prioritize the wrong things? What happens in your life when you, man, you just, you have misshapen priorities or what, what happens when you neglect what needs uh, the most attention in, in your life? So you've probably had the experience of driving down the road and there's another car near you and, and, the, and the, the car is making like this horrible like screeching sound and it's not the engine, it, it's the brakes and if you actually paid attention and looked around, you'd see that it was me. Uh, typically, um, but but our but our brakes, if we don't attend to them, they'll start making these little scraping noise, and it turns into this screeching noise, and it doesn't sound like much at all at first. In fact, you're just if you're like me, you're like I don't know. The, the brakes are making some weird sound, but I'm just convinced if I ignore it the next like year, it'll probably go away. Um, but I ignore it long enough, and it creates again this horrible sound that ends up costing me far more money to repair than if I would have just repaired it in the moment. Um, thankfully, that's only happened to me every time I've needed to replace my brake pads. Um, it's too important to ignore um, and not make a priority. And that's just a tiny example of things in our life that we do that with all the time. But the question, the more important question that's attached to that is what is most important to God? And maybe you've never thought of it that way. Maybe you've never even asked the question that directly in your life, which is what is most important to God? What are, what are his priorities above all else? What in our spiritual lives will be costly to us if we ignore it? So what we're going to do as we look into Ezra 3 is we're really going to ask this question, which is what if it's true that when the church elevates Christ above all other things, that he is then going to do a work by rebuilding, restoring, and renewing us through times of, of suffering, through times of exile, through times of opposition that we experience as people and as the church. So let's just dive right into uh, Ezra 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 13 verses, and you can follow along. And it says, when the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns. So remember last week, they took those steps of faith. They made the journey back to Jerusalem. It said the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheliatil, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar, the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, 
for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8, now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheliatil, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the son of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. So here's the question that I want to answer, and it's this. How do we see the Israelites elevate God? After they made this, they took this step of faith, they made this journey back to Jerusalem, they're inhabiting their towns, they're getting back into the place, the promised land that God had originally gave them. How do we see them now? What is their first response in elevating God after they were stirred by him. And then how does this apply to the church? And the first thing we see that they do is that they reestablished rhythms of worship. That's our first point for this morning. They reestablished rhythms of worship. They took steps of faith. And there were not only steps of faith, but they were steps of obedience. And what we know by that is that steps of faith um, can be steps of obedience. And in their case, they were. Above all else, what we read here is that they needed to get right with the Lord. The children of Israel needed to reorient themselves with the Lord. So they rebuilt the offer, the altar. And they started offering burnt offerings once again, which is the way that God had given the Israelites to confess their sins before the Lord and receive forgiveness. So I'm going to turn to Exodus chapter 29. You can turn back there with me. Verse 42 
And this was the time of the first deliverance of Israel from Egypt when God instituted burnt offerings as a way for them to come before the Lord, come clean before the Lord, confess their sins. In a sense, do what we just did during our time of confession when we were singing. And in Exodus 29:42, it says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. Well, I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron, who is the high priest, also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So this is a way for the Israelites to come back and reestablish their worship, reestablish that presence that the Lord had with them as they made regular sacrifices and burnt offerings at the altar for the forgiveness of of their sins because we know as we read in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood God said there can be no forgiveness of sins so in order to begin this process of reclaiming the land and experiencing the blessings of being brought back from captivity they needed to initiate this they needed to initiate this sacrificial system and the, this thing called the Festival of Booths, which was a, just this joyful celebration that went all the way back to their deliverance from Egypt where they gave thanks to God for, their, for his provision. Israel just needed to come clean. This is where they needed above all else before anything else to begin. They needed to come clean before the Lord by acknowledging their need for the Lord. And they did this by reestablishing rhythms of worships that began with confession and repentance of sin. That's why we just have that in our liturgy. We want to come before the Lord. We want to come clean before him. We want to acknowledge, we, man, we haven't lived perfectly as God has called us to live as his church. And we want to go before him. We want to come clean before him so that he can cleanse our hearts once again. Remind us, like Scott said, that he is a gracious and forgiving God. I think it's safe to say that the church is in a place right now where it needs to reestablish its own rhythms of worship. Because, man, we have become terribly out of practice with that over the last couple of years. Am I right? I mean, we spent so much time live streaming, wearing PJs and eating pancakes while the Sunday service played on our TVs and computers that it's hard to get back to the inconvenience of gathering with God's people every Sunday, even more so when there's a blizzard outside. That's why I'm so pumped that you guys are here. You guys gotta understand, like when me and Scott, when we see weather like this, we go, so what do you think? Is it gonna be me, you, Melissa, and Zach this morning? Like, where are we at with this? It kind of shows how we think about you though, right? So I don't know that I even should have said that, right? It doesn't, doesn't show that we have any confidence in you guys to break through the snow. Forget everything I just said. Um, <laughs> But I think that we are in a very critical place about reestablishing our worship as the church. And, and that's why, honestly, for better or for worse, we think it's for better. Um, we made the decision to stop live streaming last year. Um, and the reason that we did that is because we are committed to Substance Church reestablishing her rhythms of worship. We are committed to local ministry. Man, we heard from all over the country, people that were just you know, clicking in and joining us on Sunday mornings. That's awesome. But, but we're actually here for, for you guys. We're actually here for Ashland 
County. That's the ministry that God has given us. He's given us a flesh and blood ministry. We're glad, we're glad other people are blessed by the ministry. Other people download the, the sermons and the, and the podcasts and those things. That's awesome. But our first priority above all else is to worship God with you all, right? And so that, that's why we made that particular decision because we needed, like the Israelites, to reestablish our rhythms of worship. And it's interesting as we look down on this, that of all the things the Israelites could have gotten busy doing, this was the first thing they did above all else. So let me just ask this question to you, and it's, does this describe you after a couple of years of just disruption, right? It's incredibly hard to get back into the flow of weekly gatherings, and it's okay to admit that, right? We experience that with any any of our other rhythms, any of our physical, relational, and spiritual rhythms, eating, working out, relationships, marriages, prayer, our jobs. It's hard to reestablish good habits when we've had years of no habits, which, by the way, is a habit in and of itself, right? We can never break away from a habit. It's just are we establishing good and godly and healthy habits that, that lead us to flourishing, Right? So worship is a habit that we need to constantly reestablish because it's something that is easy to mark down as optional. I mean, how many habits do we have? Or we try to cultivate that at the end of the day, they are optional. Well, I would love to do a little bit better in this area. Well, okay, but there's different ways of going about that. There's different ways to apply particular rhythms in your life just to eat healthier, right? There's not one particular thing that, that is, that's set up, that's established for everybody to engage in, right? We all have optional habits that we're kind of flowing in and out of that we're good at one week, we're not so great at the other week, but there's not a lot at stake for a lot of those habits. But when we talk about reestablishing our worship, it's not an optional habit. God is always calling us back to worshiping him above all else, to give him praise, by the way, in the company of other believers, to confess our sins corporately, to pray together, to be instructed by his word as the church, to take communion as the body of Christ, to encourage one another to confess our sins, to grow in our sanctification together as a church family, remembering that, man, there just are no solo artists in the family of God. It's a, it's a band. It's an ensemble, right? It's a choir. Okay, maybe not a choir. I, you know, I don't know if we want to go there with that. So although private worship is important, it never comes at the expense of public, corporate, flesh and blood, rubbing elbows together, worship in our warehouse. So listen, some of you are just coming back to this, and that's awesome. That's awesome. It's probably going to take some time to get back on track. My encouragement to you is don't give up on that. See this as the vow, that's having the value that God has placed on it by virtue of him coming up with it, by virtue of him being the one that invented it, that created it, that established it, Right? Don't let the last two years become your new normal when it comes to worship. Normalize weekly rhythms of worship. And this is not a legalistic push to get you back into the pew. We don't have pews, right? <laughs> Worshiping every week in the local church, we know this. It doesn't save you. It's what saved people do. That's the difference. 
It's one of the rhythms God has built into your life to sanctify you. It's a rhythm that God has established. Notice that the Israelites didn't come out of 70 years of captivity with new rhythms, with new methods for worship. They're trying to get back to what God had already done. That's the story of the local church. We're just trying to get back to what God has done. I mean, do we think we know better than God? Right? Do we think, you know what, the last two years taught me something that I don't think God considered about worship, so let me implement that. That doesn't mean we don't have flexibility in our worship. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about as a corporate gathering coming together, not forsaking the fellowship of the saints, as we're told in the New Testament. So if you need to reestablish your worship, take that step of faith, because that's what it is. It's a step of faith. Disrupt the rhythms that have disrupted your rhythms of worship, like the Israelites. We don't need to offer sacrifices like the Israelites did anymore. Why? Well, John the Baptist declared this when he said, Christ is our sacrificial lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. That's what he said when he saw Jesus walking up. Behold, Christ, the lamb, who is here to take away the sins of the world. So what we're doing here is we're rehearsing today what is our future reality in Revelation 22, which is that one day there will be nothing accursed anymore. So we will worship the lamb at the throne of God and we will see his face. We come to share in that future grace by being present with God and with one another each and every Sunday. This is how the Israelites, this is how the church elevates God after being in exile for so long. What else did they do? Well, the other thing they did was they laid a foundation to build on. They took initiative when you look down in verse eight and it says, together they made a beginning. What an incredible way to describe what was happening at this moment in Israel's history. They, together they made a beginning. When the people step out in obedience, it becomes a new beginning for them as a nation. Not without challenges, as we're going to see in coming weeks, because they had tons of challenges. Like this whole temple just didn't just get built, right? It wasn't like some building project where they hired the contractor and three months later, like they're laying the paint, like and everything's ready to go. It wasn't even close to being like that as we're going to see. There were challenges. But even as the temple was still lying in ruins, a foundation is laid through the collective efforts of all the people. They are finally getting their priorities straight. And you know what's great about that for us, about seeing this and understanding this and how it applies to us, is that it helps us remember that the Lord loves new beginnings. He loves when his people reestablish their worship, which is laying the foundation for all the future work he is going to do. But it always begins with a return to first things. And sometimes we don't know where to begin, right? We see things lying in ruins in our lives and it feels defeating and it feels overwhelming. But God's people always have a foundation they're waiting to be built upon. It just needs to begin with Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean there aren't other things. There are. But before God rebuilds, restores, and renews the life of the church, he lays a foundation that begins with a return to worship. 
What does that mean? What does it mean for the church to build a foundation? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to tell you. It means we take practical steps, listen to this, in order to get back to what God calls us to. It means we take a hard look at the things that are making us angry, at the things that are making us agitated, right? The things that are stirring our affections, the things that function in our life as if there is no God in our life. We look at opinions and positions we hold that tell people more about our politics than about our Christ. Because it's those things, it's, it's those positions of our heart that eat away at our foundation. Does that make sense? They are not the catalyst for laying new foundations. God wants his people to get back to Christ. He wants the reestablishing of our worship to be the foundation for how the rest of our lives, listen to this, are lived and then experienced by others. So some of you all need to take a hard look at what kind of indoctrination may have entered into your life over the past couple of years. We have to look at that. We have to look closely and honestly at that. Some of you need to look at how deeply your practices and your perspectives and your ideologies, the way that you believe about the world, have replaced Christ as the foundation of your life. I mean, in some ways, Christians have done a masterful job of missing the point, of not using good discernment. Listen to this. I need you to all to be with me right now. Of thinking the problems in the church are threats coming from the outside. But the outside has never been the real threat for the church. Jesus said what? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The greatest threat to the church comes from the hearts of the people who are the church. Hearts that have grown angry and agitated and calloused and fed up and merciless and graceless and compassionless and unaware and unrepentant of their own sin. Listen, nowhere does it say that the Israelites offered sacrifices because of all the bad Persian influences that had surrounded them during all of those years in captivity? It doesn't say it anywhere in there. It was their own hearts that needed to be washed clean before the Lord. It wasn't out there that destroyed their foundation, it was in here. That's what led them to captivity. So we remember that with a measure of sobriety because it's too easy for the church to step out and go, oh man, it's the evil influence of the world. Are those an influence on the church? They are. Do we got to guard against those things? We do. But we like to step back and say, if only those outside influences weren't there, man, we would just be all tracking. We'd be doing awesome. When in reality, what that does is cause us not to deal with the junk that's going undealt with in our hearts that may be influenced by some of the outside stuff, but doesn't need that outside stuff to be influenced. Does that make sense? Ultimately, the foundation for the temple 
the Israelites were laying would find its fulfillment in Christ, who is not only the foundation, but the cornerstone, who, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1.17, is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church needs to reestablish its rhythms of worship so that Christ is reinstated as its foundation. So that in everything, he might be preeminent. So that as we come before the Lord and come before one another, we are experiencing renewal in our hearts that will change how we respond to stuff that comes in and threatens to change us from the outside. But it starts in here. The church elevates God by returning to Christ as its forever foundation. Here's the third thing that the Israelites did to elevate God. They rejoice and weep before the Lord. They rejoice and they weep before the Lord. They express themselves to God as you read verses 10 through 13. Notice the response when the foundation is laid. It's really interesting, super curious. There are shouts of praise where they sing a song talking about the steadfast love of the Lord for he is good in verse 11 for steadfast love endures forever toward Israel and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Shouts of praise. And then oddly enough, it was also coupled here with this loud lamenting from those who had seen the original temple. For those who had been there, who were, who were the original, who were the, like the OGs, right, with the temple, and they had been there when they'd seen it all unfold the first time, and they'd seen the way that the Lord had blessed it the first time. They'd also lived through the destruction. They'd also lived through those hard days and years where they were brought into captivity. But it's interesting for us as we look down and see both praise and lament coming together like a chorus, right? Coming together the way a band plays together and all the instruments work together, playing their respective notes, but creating something that contributes to the whole of a tune and a song. And you might think, how can this be? Why isn't there only praise? Why isn't everyone stoked? Because of the building of the foundation, the laying of the foundation. Isn't this what they've all been waiting for? This passage has really valuable implications for us and how we are meant and how we need to understand what our worship is. It's interesting that two different people could have such different reactions, isn't it? If you were younger, all you could probably see was that this day was a day of rejoicing. But if you were old enough, it would have recalled the days when the first temple was being built. And all you could see was that God now was reestablishing something that was originally destroyed. And what we learn here is that a time of rejoicing for some is a time of lament for others. And by the way, nowhere does it highlight one expression 
as being holier or more valuable or more acceptable than the other. Lament is as important as praise. And what this does is this reminds us that one of the most gracious and godliest ways for the church to respond to God's movement is by slowing its role. All right? And what do I mean by that? I mean, when the church hits pause and takes time to imagine what kind of pain, what kind of trauma a particular person or people group might be experiencing at this point in history, how disappointing it is when the church tries to tell people what they should and shouldn't be feeling based on what makes us the most comfortable. Rejoicing and weeping are two ways that God has given us to respond to him, listen to this, with hearts that reflect the very expression of his heart. It was good for there to be simultaneous choruses of rejoicing and weeping happening to where people couldn't even tell the difference unless you were the people that were in it expressing it. The rejoicing pointed to God's deliverance and the weeping pointed back to God's judgment. The rejoicing pointed to the future, but the weeping pointed back to a past that needed to be remembered so that the future could be pursued with greater faithfulness. Both had to happen. If it was just all praise, if it was just all rejoicing, there would be a, a component that would be missing that later generations then would be more susceptible to falling back into, which was God's judgment because they realized how easily they were able to slide away from worshiping God. And if it's just lament, if it's just weeping, then it's ignoring the work that God is doing today and the fact that he had brought them out of captivity. Both were important. Sandra McCracken, she's a musician. This is what she had to say about lament. I thought this was a great quote. She said... Lament is born out of love and loss. If we open ourselves to love, we have opened ourselves to God's heart and also to grieve what he grieves. And as we learn to lament, we see how God limits the darkness and upholds us in our grief. Isn't that awesome? God is elevated in our rejoicing. God is elevated in our weeping and we are made whole in an honest expression of those two movements, which is why we try to do that here. We try to have songs of praise and we try to have songs of lament. There needs to be a place for you when you come to substance to express whatever it is that's going on in your heart. And you're gonna have seasons in your life where it's gonna feel like all lament. And that's okay, we have books in the Bible that are all lament. And then you're going to have seasons in your life where you feel like, man, I just want to praise the Lord. Man, I feel his blessings upon me. Man, I just want to rejoice all the time. He gives us expressions for both of those things. So as a church that desires God to rebuild and restore and renew us after years of, again, a particular kind of exile where God has been pruning the church, we take steps of obedience. We take steps of initiative. We take steps to express how hard things have been 
and also how hopeful things are because of who walks before us and walks with us. We reestablish our rhythms of worship every week. And by doing so, what do we do? We lay a gospel-centered, Christ-saturated foundation that is filled with good fruits and diverse expressions of praise that include both rejoicing and weeping because we are coming out of our inoculation. Because we are becoming less desensitized and more sensitive to the stirring of God's spirit. So we keep coming back even when we don't even think or feel or know if God is doing anything. We trust that he is because these are the rhythms that he has given to us so that he remains the foundation of our church, of our heart, and as our soul. Turn with me as we end to Ephesians chapter 5 because I think this is a really beautiful way for us to end on this particular note. Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writing the church in Ephesus. Verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So when we are constantly going back to God, we are constantly above all else making Christ the center of our lives and the center of the life of this church. It's a way that we are imitating the very heart and character of God. It's the way that is, creates the foundation for us to walk in love with one another, to do it not just out of selfish gain, but as the way that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us so that when God looks down, he sees what is to him a fragrant offering and sacrifice of praise back to him. And you know what happens in that? We become a church then that is full of good fruits. We become a church that is full of the very fruit of Jesus Christ. And that is the church that we want to be and be constantly becoming. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are always calling us back to you. You are always calling us back to reestablishing our worship. You are always calling us back to remember who our foundation is, that it's Christ and that you've given us hearts and minds and hands to continue to lay those foundations down. And Lord, thank you for the expression that you give us in the midst of that process, which is the ability to express our praise to you and to express our lament to you. You've given us rejoicing and weeping because this comes from your very heart. And in that, we are moved and changed and we become a fragrant offering and sacrifice to you. So God, would you go before us today as we think deeply about these things, as we think about the ways that you are stirring in our hearts, as we think about our own idols, we think about the the different people and things in our lives that have captivated us, that we worship at the altar of. And Lord, today would you convict us of those things? Lord, would you call us back to Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.